We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself. Because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order? Cashback guru? Low intro APR lover? With US Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. US Bank credit cards are issued by US Bank National Association ND. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Wednesday, July 15th. Nick Whalen back with Alex Barutha. Alex, Michael Beasley has left the NBA bubble. Uh, the Nets are now down their six best players, I believe, if, if my count is correct. Um, we will kind of run through all the news that's that's come through over the last four or five days. Uh, you, Shen, Ken, and Shannon last week covered a lot of what was going on at that time, but we continue to have a steady trickle of NBA news as teams begin to ramp up practices. And, you know, we start to see some players like James Harden, Nikola Jokic, uh, guys who weren't initially part of the traveling party, um, start to arrive on their own in Orlando. So we'll run through all of the the biggest news of this week. But we have to start with Michael Beasley. I mean, this is it was kind of it was very cool when the Nets brought him back. He's one of those guys that despite this happening Pretty much every year for the last like six years, he will just randomly join a team in February, and I get excited every single time. And then said team 
we'll maybe bring him to training camp the next year and then cut him in September. And then he goes back to China and the whole process starts over again. I mean, this was going to be <laughs> arguably his best opportunity in a long time. Uh, a lot of the teams that he'd signed with over the last few years, it was kind of like a just fill out the roster situation. And obviously Brooklyn has a lot of holes to fill, but based on how many guys uh, starting with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving going all the way down to Torian Prince and Spencer Dinwiddie and Wilson Chandler, there was going to be real minutes on the table for Michael Beasley, maybe not in a starting role, but he was arguably going to be the second power forward and like the third small forward on that depth chart. That could still happen, but the fact that Michael Beasley has left the bubble after testing positive, it, it, we've, we've kind of struggled to find like a true report as to what this means um, as far as quarantining. But in our estimation, at least, he'll have to now go quarantine to wherever he left to go to. And then we'll have to re-quarantine and re-acclimate once he would return to the bubble in in the future at a, at a TBD date. Is that correct? Uh, that seems like the case. I think you have to, I mean, you have to do two negative uh, COVID tests 24 hours apart once you're in the bubble. Um, so, I mean, that's at least, you know, that's basically like two days of quarantine. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it's really unclear when he may actually be back. And when he does come back, he has to serve a five game suspension for violating the anti drug policy, which was a suspension he got in August of 2019 so i i don't he the whole situation is very strange part of me thinks he like forgot that he had to serve a five-game suspension and then they're like you have coronavirus you know you have to go home and or or maybe he they didn't have to send him home and he was like wait you know like maybe i'm not sure i actually want to do this Mm -hmm. um it's uh it's unfortunate i was looking forward to seeing beasley and jamal crawford on the same court actually playing like, you know, 26, 27 minutes a game. And it's still very possible that that could happen. But like you said, factoring in the suspension, we're looking at probably a max of three, um, you know, quote unquote, regular season games for Beasley. And then assuming the Nets hang on to that playoff spot, probably four games in round one of the playoffs, whether they match up with Toronto or Boston or, or certainly Milwaukee in round one. Um, but that's obviously by far the biggest news of these last few days. In uh, other minor news, Russell Westbrook tested positive for coronavirus. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's still kind of alarming every single time a player, especially an all-star caliber player, tests positive. But then you glance at the calendar and you realize, OK, we're still 15 days away as of Wednesday from any games actually starting. And for some teams, as many as 17 days away. So if you're going to test positive, I guess you want to get it out of the way now. It would be much worse if it happened a week or two from now. Uh, and and as far as Westbrook is concerned, he said he's you know feeling no symptoms whatsoever, which is a great sign. And you know I, I think the NBA is doing at least what it can to. You know, if you read the big report that the league put out, you know the the parameters for this whole thing. Part of the deal is if you test positive, you're you're essentially supposed to be maybe not bedridden, but you're not supposed to be in the gym. You're not supposed to be working out. You're fo- you're supposed to be focusing like 100% on recovery. We'll see about that. I, I forget which player it was. Um, I, actually, no, I think it was Derek Jones from the Heat. I was just reading an article today about him, and he gave a quote that uh, certainly implied that he had been working out the entire time while recovering, and he too had no symptoms. So I, I don't know that the league is really enforcing that all that much, but the bottom line is if you're testing positive right now, even a couple of days from now, and certainly in the past, 
you're going to have enough time to recover and, and likely not miss any games and, and really not impact your standing with your team before this eight game regular season starts. Yeah, when you said that, uh, like you would rather get it out of the way now, I'd see we saw a report that Westbrook and before we knew Westbrook had it, that Westbrook and Hargan weren't with the team in Orlando. I immediately got the thought of like Hargan and Westbrook trying as hard as they can to catch it so that they're like the most so they can't catch it during the playoffs and they have the best chance of, you know, going as far as the playoffs as possible. But Hargan just like couldn't get it. Like he tried really hard and he just like reluctantly yeah. showed up to Orlando a couple of days ago and was like, all right, well, I guess I can't. I'm not going to get it. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a chance that James Harden had coronavirus in like 2015 and he's, just <laughs> now. He's, he's had every possible strain and has gone to extreme lengths to to get those. And it's just impossible for him to get sick at this point. Yeah, he explains his asthma. Right. You know, maybe he's just had coronavirus this whole time. Um, but, but yeah, I it, you're you're right in bringing up that like, yeah, it, it's kind of shocking, I guess, in a way to see players who test positive, especially like you know high level players. But then yeah, you realize it probably for most guys won't really affect uh, them come playoff time and. and who even knows what capacity some of these guys would even be playing if they were fully healthy anyway, especially once they're like locked into a specific seed or the seeding doesn't really matter for them. Yeah. Those teams, teams like the Rockets, basically like the top seven in the West and the top six in the East are kind of working off of different timetables than everyone else. Like they're the date that those teams are focusing on is more like August 15th or August 20th. Whereas if you're the Nets or the Wizards or the Magic or any of those teams vying for the eight seed in the West, you're much more concerned about having everybody ready to go right away on July 30th. Um, you know, they, you know, other teams have the benefit of the doubt. Like if, if LeBron got coronavirus in two weeks and missed the entire eight game lead up, obviously that would be damaging to the Lakers. They might go 0 and 8, but they're still probably going to get the two seed in the Western Conference. You know, there's just not as much at stake for those teams. But overall, I mean, I, I think. You know, kind of, kind of looking from afar the past week, I, I admittedly wasn't on my phone a ton when, when I was out west, but it seems like things have gone about as well as they could have, right? I mean, it, like I said, there's still kind of a minor freak out every time a player tests positive. You're going to get the people who quote tweet Woj, or I guess at, at right now, Shams, because Woj can't tweet, saying this is a bad <laughs> idea. I can't believe the league's doing this, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I mean, the league, the, the positive test rate has been extremely low, and in theory, at least once, you know, the last of the players who've tested positive are in quarantine and have gone through every, you know, passing every test, multiple negative results, everything should be clean. And, you know, then you start to worry about how secure is the bubble, the Disney employees, et cetera. Um, and, and that's going to be an ongoing conversation, hopefully until mid-October. Um, but for the time being, it, like, it wouldn't have surprised me if, if a lot more players, I guess, had tested positive. It, it still, it seems like that rate has been uh, I guess for me, at least lower than I would have expected. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like it's going about as well as it could have. And, um, you know, I th- I know, you know, the, it sounds like it's kind of up to the players, whether or not they like officially, like whether their name gets disclosed to somebody who has coronavirus. So it's possible like more players had it between the shutdown of the season and now, and it just wasn't reported because it didn't have to be, and it's kind of up to the player. Um, but, yeah, I mean, even if that's the case, just from what we've seen now in Orlando, I think two players in the bubble tested positive, 
Um, and I assume Beasley was one of them. And, you know, I mean, that's a pretty low number still. And I'm not sure exactly what they're doing to, to deal with that. But, um, yeah, like you said, it's it's a, <laughs> it's hard to imagine it a, a realistic scenario of like it going smoother than it is right now. The privacy aspects have been very interesting to track as well, where it, it every team seems to be handling it differently. And, it, you know, if you're <clears throat> if you're a national media guy and you get wind that player X has tested positive, it seems like a lot of those guys have just kind of ran with it and, and tweeted it as though it's news, which, it, you know, granted, given the situation, it is. Uh, but I mentioned the Derek Jones situation earlier. He returned to practice yesterday, practice today as well. He's he's basically good to go. But the Heat have been very strange about the statuses of both Bam Adebayo and Kendrick Nunn. And they, they have not commented on why those players are not in the bubble. But at this point, it's extremely clear that both players tested positive prior to the team entering the bubble last week. Um, and the fact that there's really no concern, at least outwardly, that either of those guys won't be ready when the season starts, I think makes it even more obvious that that's what's happening. But uh, I just I just thought it was odd that the Heat would you know, essentially confirm that Derek Jones test positive. And, and I think he tested positive earlier than those two. So maybe that's part of it. Um, but they continue to just be very coy about what's, you know, just kind of turning into a pretty obvious situation to, to onlookers like us. Yeah. I feel like they're, they play their injuries pretty close to the best, right? Like I feel like when we, yeah, I mean, when we general, hear about yeah. injuries, yeah. Yeah. When, like when we hear about injuries to guys, they're just like always day to day, but they end up being out for like two and a half months. And it's just like every day it's like didn't practice. Uh, you know, he's day to day. Oh, he's not going to play today. And that just goes on forever. So, um, not too surprising that they won't like formally reveal it. But on the other hand, like you said, like what else would really be going on? Right. Yeah. I, I think it, yeah, that situation is obvious. But again, both guys should be ready um, by, by July 30th or 31st, whenever the Heat play their first game. Outside of coronavirus, uh, I would say arguably more significant, you know, injury type of news. Uh, Rajon Rondo immediately got to Orlando and fractured his thumb within like 30 <laughs> seconds of getting there. Um, but we talked about the Lakers operating on a different timetable than some of these other teams. I mean, missing Rondo for six to eight weeks, that was the initial timetable. Based on some comments since then, some from Rondo, some from the team, it sounds like they're they're really optimistic that it's going to be closer to six weeks as opposed to eight. We'll see about that. But really not that big of a deal in the near term. When you start counting out the weeks, you know, maybe this means Rondo misses round one of the playoffs. And I, I think the bigger concern at that point is just conditioning. You know, what, you know, how long does it take him to kind of regain the dexterity in the thumb, things like that. Um, but not a situation where he's necessarily going to miss the most significant games for the Lakers going forward. With that said, you know, the timing is, is I guess, technically good for the Lakers. Obviously, you don't want this injury to happen at all. But, you know, we kind of joked around last week about even with a healthy Rajon Rondo, they were going to need something from Deion Waiters and or J.R. Smith. And this really illustrates the true issue. You know, it's, it's the depth itself is a problem, but that it becomes a you know, national emergency if one of those guys like Rondo or KCP or Danny Green or even Alex Caruso goes down. And we're at least going to see that now under lower stake circumstances in this in this eight game regular season. But the Lakers guard depth is now you, know, you can pencil in LeBron at point guard, KCP at shooting guard, Danny Green's at small forward. That means Alex Caruso is your first guard off the bench. And your your only remaining guards at this point are Quinn Cook, Deion Waiters, J.R. Smith. 
Yes. Um, I mean, <laughs> I guess at the very least, kind of like you mentioned, the timing of it allows those guys to get into a flow early in the playoffs and during the eight regular season games so that by the time more serious playoff games happen, JR, Deion Wayers especially, will, and Quinn Cook, I guess, will be more, they'll be, they'll have more minutes that they'll be more comfortable on the court so that when those games come, they'll be more prepared and they're not just like tossed in there after not playing for like a really long period of time. Um, but yeah, I mean, like six to eight weeks, like you mentioned, I mean, that's, at this, I don't want to say it's irrelevant for the Lakers, but it's not really that big of a deal for them if you consider the timetable. Right. I think it it becomes a little bit of an issue depending on you know whether they hold on to that one seed and who they would face as the eight. Uh, I thought it was interesting on on Zach Lowe's pod, um, or actually it was on the Simmons pod, I believe. Chris Haynes um, called the Blazers the most dangerous team in this entire tournament. And, you know, he obviously has a history with the Blazers, so that wasn't like a shocking comment, but <laughs> he was not joking around. Like he, he was like, look, if the, if the Blazers get the eight seed, I would not be surprised if they really push the Lakers or even beat the Lakers. I think he went as far as to say he wouldn't be shocked if they made it to the finals. I, I'm willing to draw the line a little bit before that. Uh, but it worried as, as a, a general LeBron supporter, I would not want them to play the Blazers. That's the last team I would want them to face. In round one, the Lakers have, have played the Pelicans well a couple of times late before the shutdown. Um, you know, obviously the Suns, the Spurs, even Memphis to some degree don't really worry you that much. But I mean, if the Blazers get in, that's a team that with this current level of talent, adding Zach Collins, adding Joseph Nurkic, still having Hassan Whiteside, you know, Melo looked better in that one 12 second Twitter video that came out yesterday that uh, now means he's back to being 27 years old. I don't know. I mean, the Blazers are, would basically be like your typical maybe five or six seed masquerading as an eight seed. That's yeah, that's very true. And like, I mean, they're they're down Trevor Ariza, which actually kind of yeah. hurts them because their their wing rotation otherwise is not great. He was I mean, he was playing really well for them. Uh, yeah. um, well, I, th- I think the question and, with that, too, is you know, even if Melo plays better, you know, obviously getting those two big guys back is huge. But Losing Ariza, like who guards LeBron? Who guards Kawhi? Who guards Paul George on that team right now? Like that's a serious question. Like I, they don't really have any wings. Like is it? Are you going to throw a rookie, Nas Little? It's not. Is it going to be Mario Hazonia? You know, if it's not one of those guys, then you're looking at Melo, you know, Wenyan Gabriel, who's basically a G leaguer. Like they really have no strong wing defenders with with Ariza out and and Rodney Hood, you know, still recovering from that torn Achilles. I mean, their their best option might be how Orlando played against LeBron in that early playoff series in Cleveland, where they let him basically do whatever he wants, but shut, try to shut down everyone else. So if they just like, you know, try to focus on chugging Anthony Davis down, which theoretically with Nurkic and Whiteside, they should right. be able to give him some problems, especially, you know, he, he shouldn't be getting too much around the basket. Um, so maybe if they focus on making sure Anthony Davis doesn't get anything done and then trying to tire LeBron out, I mean, that's probably their best call. Cause like you said, you may, I mean, you may as well just punt the whole idea of trying to guard LeBron. Right. Yeah. Like unless Nas little turns out to be, you know, like yeah. surprisingly good defender or something. No, I like that idea. I mean, I think historically LeBron, unless he's like really backed into a corner has been very hesitant to have a game where he takes 35 shots, you know, or just, right. you know, has to go for 45 plus points. It's, you know, he usually, even if teams will, will play him that way, he still usually tries to play the 
smartest play available style. And if you're if you're selling out to take out Anthony Davis, that eliminates, you know, by far their best pick and roll threat. And you kind of still try to force LeBron to play that same game. I, I think I think what you ideally in that scenario for Portland is you want LeBron still playing the like the drive and kick game. And you want to you don't necessarily want to make LeBron beat you, but you want to make LeBron think he can beat you by passing to KCP and J.R. Smith and Deion Waiters. You know, and I, I think if you can force those guys to go a combined like three of 15 from three, then you're probably going to be in good shape unless, you know, LeBron does take matters into his own hands and is and is willing to score at the level that we know we can. But you know, at the end of the day, we, we rarely see that, um, you know, unless you know, say for a few, I guess, you know, distinct series over the years. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think I think you were right. And I think Chris Haynes probably was exaggerating a little bit, but I don't know. I mean, if you matched up Portland with uh, let's let's not do the L.A. teams, you know, against Denver, Utah, OKC, Houston, Dallas. Yeah, they stand a really good chance against all of those teams, I think. Like they're not as deep as Denver necessarily. Um, and they don't have the the very top end talent that that Houston does. But they're going to have, you know, I think the best point guard in any series. Um, if you don't count Doncic, but I still right. think Dame's better than Doncic. Um, and they're going to have the best center rotation, you know, with, with Nurkic and Whiteside of, of any team that they face. So, you know, for them, like I said, it's all about the wing play. But I mean, yeah, if they if they made it to the Western Conference Finals, I mean, it, I guess, you know, being one of the L.A. teams would be shocking. But being any other team that's in the playoffs, I don't I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I would say that was shocking. Yeah, I, I agree with you on there. I mean, the problem for them is they if they get in, it's going to be as the eight seed. So you're going to have to go through one of the L.A. teams right, right away. Right. But like you said, if yeah. you get through that, I, I wouldn't say that I would necessarily pick the Blazers straight up over Houston, over Denver. You know, Utah and Dallas and OKC becomes a little more of a question. But at the very least, that's like a 60-40 toss up. Right. You know, like it wouldn't be inconceivable. I mean, they beat they beat Denver last year without Joseph Nurkic. Um, and, and Houston is as volatile as any team, despite, you know, still kind of hanging on to this momentum as the third best bet in the Western Conference. So, yeah, I mean, somewhere between an exaggeration and reality, I guess. I mean, I, I think what's important to keep in mind is like I, I thought Haynes was talking about the like the the Blazers as if they're the Warriors, you know, like, oh, as if they're getting Stephen Clay back. You know, it's like at the end of the day, the Blazers have been a very good team when healthy. They've never been a great team. You know, they they got to the West Finals last year, but they, you know, they fizzled out just like everybody thought they would. They they kind of limped in there uh, to start with. So I think I think we have to remember, like, what this team's upside has been even when healthy. But at the same time, the, the end of the at the end of the day, if you're the Lakers or the Clippers, that is not the team you want staring at you as the eight seed, especially when you look across the bracket and Milwaukee's matching up with Brooklyn or Washington or Orlando. Yeah, agreed. Um, in other injury news, uh, Dennis Schroeder expected to leave the Thunder at some point uh, for a period of time uh, to be with his wife, who I believe is giving birth to their second child. And he said he estimates that he'll have to leave in three to four weeks. Uh, OKC, you know, a team that has a playoff spot basically locked up, so it shouldn't be a massive impact in the short term. But he could end up missing a pretty good chunk of these seeding games. I, I think the goal, depending on when the child arrives, of course, would be for him to be back for the start of the playoffs. But uh, this is now, you know, something to keep an eye on at the very least you know, for fantasy purposes, definitely. And, you know, if you're a Thunder fan, uh, this was a guy who was their third best player for part of the year. 
Yeah, I th- I mean I think so. I mean uh, I mean maybe Danilo Gallinari, but it it, it was close. I mean they Schroeder kind of had like a career realization. I mean he, he could win six man of the year potentially for them. Uh, and yeah, I mean it, it seems like there's a chance he'd be back for the first round, which would be great. Right now they're lined up to play Utah, which is a series I think they could win. Um, otherwise, if they drop a little bit, they could end up playing Denver. Uh, um, so it's kind of unclear. But as long as he's back for the playoffs, I don't really see you know too, too much of an issue uh, there. Now, fairly minor in the grand scheme of things, but that I mean that's another team that doesn't have a ton of depth really anywhere, and losing right. Schroeder would be you know pretty damaging uh, overall for OKC. Kemba Walker, I, this is probably a little more concerning uh, than it's been getting in terms of national attention. I, I mean, all indications are that Walker will be back, but I think what's most concerning is that he's not really recovering from a true injury. You know, it kind of seems like he's in the exact same spot now than he, that he was four and a half months ago, which isn't a great sign. You know, the time off didn't really seem to benefit, you know, what, whatever's been going on with his knees and that the Celtics have kind of shied away from giving a true diagnosis, you know, when we were tracking this back in February and March, it was just a lot of like soreness or uh, general aggravation. And I, it's, it's kind of seeming like it's more of like an arthritis or a degenerative type of issue. And, you know, the fact that he's not practicing on consecutive days, I think what was the wording for the foreseeable future um, from the Celtics reporters today, not a great sign, you know, something that, that certainly Boston will manage, but it, it, I think ideally the hope was that all this time off would absolve whatever was going on there. And it, and it looks like that's not going to be the case, which is a concern in the short term. Definitely. I would argue more of a concern in the long term for Boston. Yes. I mean, ironically, this kind of reminds me of like the Kyrie knee injury situation when he was like asking to be traded from Cleveland and threatening to get knee surgery if he wasn't traded and then getting traded and just like playing through it. I like one of those situations where it's like, yeah, you can play through it, but it's clear. Something's clearly wrong. And, right. um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's still worrisome. Like you said, like everyone says he's, he's fine, but like, are, are you really fine if you're practicing every other day and it was still an issue? And, um, you know, I, you just never know when something like that, be, like you kind of wonder if it's a ticking time bomb to some extent, like how right. far are you going to get in the playoffs and it, it gives out. Can you not play him more than 35 minutes a game? Can you not play more than like 30 minutes a game if it's a really, really tough playoff game? Um, and so it, I, it you don't want to sweep it, sweep it under the rug entirely from like a narrative perspective because it's it should be concerning for the Celtics, who will also be losing Gorgon Hayward for paternity leave, I think, in September. Yeah, that's another another thing to keep an eye on, you know, as we progress through the playoffs. I mean, when I'm when I'm saying I'm concerned about it long term, I'm talking next season, the season after, oh, sure. the season after yeah. that. I mean, long term, long term throughout these playoffs, of course. But I mean, Kemba Walker's on the books for 35 mil next year, 36 mil in 21, 22, and then he has that 38 million dollar player option in 22, 23. So. You know, again, they'll they'll do all they can to manage this, but I, I think the long term signs are not great right now, and and hopefully, you know, hopefully they find a resolution. But you know, it's another thing where you look and, you know, it, I don't know that there's going to be much of an off season for him to recover. You know, if if we get to the Eastern Conference Finals, the Celtics are playing 
and Kemba Walker limps off the floor in game five and that's the last we see of him, he might only have like a two month break until next season. So like at what point, you know, at what point does this, does it stop? Is there anything you can do to mitigate it? You know, you mentioned Kyrie threatening surgery. I haven't heard anything that would suggest that surgery would be the solution here. You know, with, with Kyrie, it did seem like once he got the surgery, he was healthy. You know, the injuries he's had since then have been different. Um, and you know, he's, he's had a bunch of them, but they haven't been related to that one issue. Whereas with Kemba, you would think if, if surgery was on the table, they would have done it right away in March with the hope that he could be back for, for August. And it, it just never seems like that was a consideration. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough to know. I like, I mean, he's someone who has mostly been healthy throughout his career, um, but has also played a ton of minutes. Like he really hasn't played too many playoff minutes. Obviously. I think he only has like what one series, two series, but I mean, he's been playing 35 minutes a game for, for his entire career and has missed like, you know, 20 games or something like that total, especially even before this year. So, I mean, he's a small point guard who has a ton of miles on him and he's 30. You know, it's never, never a great sign long term. No, and it would be a tough break for for Boston, certainly, which is, you know, kind of it looked like they had found their guy with Kyrie and then, you know, injuries and other factors played into that. It looked like they found maybe the the more secure option in Kemba Walker, maybe a slightly lower ceiling than Kyrie Irving, but the more dependable option. And now right away, these knee issues start cropping up. And I don't remember if it was on the Simmons pod or the low pod or the Rosillo pod, some pod I was I was binging yesterday. Um, somebody mentioned that that they had heard that this was part of the reason that Charlotte was hesitant to give him like the full max or I don't, I don't remember if he was super oh. max eligible or not, but I, I remember, you know, the report was kind of like Charlotte lowballed Kemba, and that was part of the reason he eventually left. I think this was part of the reason, and you know, I guess kudos to them for or Kemba, whoever didn't let this really get out. But um, again, hopefully we're we're not talking about this as much down the road, but uh, definitely something to keep an eye on in the short term. In a similar vein, I, I think you know you made a great comparison with Kemba to Kyrie. This situation reminds me a lot more of Kawhi Leonard with the Spurs, but Victor Oladipo you know, kind of continues to waffle on what his status will be for the restart. Um, I mean, he was a guy that I guess I just kind of blindly assumed the time off would help him. And then a couple of weeks ago, he announces that he's not playing. He, you know, he doesn't quite feel right, even though he was medically cleared. He just didn't, didn't feel like he was ready. Again, reminds me a lot of the Kawhi situation. Although I don't think Oladipo is like trying to use this as a way to force his way out of Indiana by any means. Um, but now it sounds like he, he kind of jumped in on some practices over the past week. And as of today, I, I think things have completely turned around and now it, it, the way he's talking, it sounds like he plans to play. Yeah. We, we kind of discussed this on our, our last pod together that we did like, it's weird that he's going down there and rehabbing and that if they get far enough, maybe he just hops in and it sounds like he's very close to doing that or wants to. Um, and I don't think it's still like really unclear if he can just like walk, like if he can just hang out and then if the Pacers get out of the first round, he can just like be like, yeah, I'm back now. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, obviously like we, we talked about, this would be huge for the Pacers. Like he started to play well before the hiatus. Um, I mean, for like, for like six quarters. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. But like, (laughs) uh, if, if the time off actually did help him. And the rehab goes well, and he is closer, you know, to being himself. Obviously, that raises the ceiling of Indiana by a ton, because, in my opinion, he's the best. His ceiling is the best offensive and defensive player on the team. 
So, mm-hmm. like, having him back in a full capacity takes the Pacers from, you know, uh, hopefully a second-round team into, you know, a potentially uh, a team that could, you know, upset a Boston or Toronto if the if things bounce weird or get past Philly, um, even though their talent is, is nowhere near close to that. Because um, they've been playing well all year without him and just, like, theoretically, literally just adding that guy to a team that already went 39-26. and 26. It's right. huge. Yeah, I mean, we, we've covered this pretty thoroughly, I think, kind of on both sides of what it, what it would mean for him to be there or to not be there. I think we all agree that their ceiling or, or their floor, I guess, just kind of drops out if he's not there. They're, you know, maybe maybe they get through round one, but almost certainly not round two. With a healthy Oladipo, that changes things. I mean, even on paper, I think that roster compares more favorably to Philly, Miami, Boston, Toronto than, than a lot of people would think, uh, especially with the emergence of Sabonis as a, a legitimate all-star this past mm-hmm. year. I, I think there there maybe is something there, but I did think it was interesting that the line hasn't really moved for them. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, back when we first thought, you know, before Oladipo had said anything, like we, we initially thought that he would be there and we were optimistic. They were still well behind the pack in terms of Boston, Toronto, Philly, Miami, when it comes to odds to win the East. Like, for example, Miami's still at 10 to 1 to, to win the East. Miami's at 32, or excuse me, Indiana is at 32 to 1. That's significantly further back than any of those other non-Bucks teams, uh, kind of two tier two teams in the East. And even with this news that Oladipo is feeling much better and likely will play, that hasn't moved at all. I, I thought that was really strange. They aren't that much worse than Miami. No, not at all. Like if Philly or if Miami and Indiana played each other in round one, I would not be surprised at all if Indiana won. I would pick Miami, but I, I would think it'd go at least six, right? I mean, it's not like Indiana's just some pushover team. No, not at all. I mean, I think like I think to even make, have that number make sense, if Oladipo is there, you have to. I, I don't know. I mean, the assumption might be that Miami's a better team to defeat the Bucks, which I would yeah, agree right. with. In terms of like guarding Giannis sure. and guarding Chris Middleton, sure. But in terms of just like the more talented team, if Oladipo is there, it's not. Yeah. It's not ten to one versus thirty-four to one or whatever. They're, they'd yeah. be much closer, even in my book. Yeah, I mean, Indiana was two games worse than Miami. They were exactly the same record as Philly during the regular season. And I, I do get your point. I, I, I think no matter what, with or without Oladipo, Indiana's upside is lower than Miami's, Philly's, Boston's, Toronto's. So I get that, but. It's not that big of a gap. You know, Philly, Philly's at seven and a half to one to win the East. Boston's at six and a half to one to win the East. There's not that big of a difference. That's all I'm saying. I, I, I think the Pacers deserve a little bit more respect with or without Oladipo. But again, sounds like he is trending in the right direction. We're still waiting on Kelly Oubre and Jonathan Isaac. Uh, both guys are, are with the teams in Orlando. Um, a, a little bit more on the line, I guess, for Isaac, just because Orlando is in such a good spot to make the playoffs and at least get a few more meaningful games in, even if that means probably getting whacked by the Bucks or Toronto again. Um, but at least with Isaac, like he at least has more of a timetable. You know, like if, if Kelly Oubre is not back by the fourth or fifth seeding game for Phoenix, you know, it's like at that point, what I, probably not worth it to bring him back for one or two more games. Whereas with Isaac, he could miss all the seeding games and then, you know, give himself that extra two weeks and then maybe play in round one of the playoffs. Yeah, and as... As lame as it sounds, that would be, what, two playoffs in a row for Orlando, which is, I think, technically progress. But having, you know, having Isaac available for that, to, I mean, it'd be fun to have him, you know, uh, watch him like guard Giannis and stuff like that. Like, he would at least be 
entertaining with him there. They'd be a better eighth seed than yeah. Brooklyn or Washington. He was arguably the best wing defender in the league when healthy. Arguably. Not saying he was, but you could make statistically you could certainly make the case. Yeah, no question. Yeah, you're right. So that would be two in a row for Orlando. People forget they did win game one against Toronto they last did. year. They uh, did. One of the, one of the in retrospect, one of the weirdest games of all time in the playoffs. <laughs> Prior to that, that was a scoreless Kyle Lowry game. I think didn't like DJ Augustine yeah. go off or somebody went off for so. Orlando. Um yeah. They went six years without making the playoffs um, from 2013 through 18, which for a team that had a lot of success prior to that, uh, a, a pretty rough run. But yeah, they, they're they in that spot, though. They're like in the same spot that the Bucks were in from 2008 through like 2011. Yeah, it's not a great spot to be in. Yeah. But History you know, suggests they have- that they will soon trade for John Salmons. <laughs> That's the next or step. Or J.J. Reddick. Yeah, right. Go all in to get JJ Redick or trade half of your assets to get Samuel Dalbert and Corey McGetty. <laughs> um, okay. Corey McGetty back on the court. I was weirdly talking. I had a long conversation about Samuel Dalbert uh, on vacation this past week. I, I won't get into that, <laughs> but let's just say we we covered him very thoroughly. I spent some time on his basketball reference page. So if anybody wonders what I do on my vacation downtime, it's research Samuel Dalbert. Um, <laughs> Not any different than what you're doing here, except you just yeah. I didn't even feel like I was on. Yeah, I didn't even take vacation. I counted that as a work day. (laughs) Uh, All right. So another fairly minor news: uh, both Harden and Jokic arrived in the bubble this week. Uh, You know, kind of, kind of in that Bam situation where we, where nobody was ever really all that concerned. I think Jokic maybe a little bit because there there seemed to be an issue with him getting back to the United States as a whole, as opposed to just the bubble. Whereas Harden, it seemed like, was just kind of waiting as long as he possibly could to enter the bubble. And both those guys are there. Everything seems good. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'll be interested to see when the first videos of, of Jokic practicing start to emerge, because I think that's what people are probably more interested in, is just seeing if he looks any different, if he moves any different, if he plays any differently, um, you know, with this alleged weight loss, which I will say the photo that the Nuggets posted yesterday um, he, did, he didn't look quite as skinny as he did in the one from like a month ago. Yeah, I, I saw him say that he lost like somewhere between three and five pounds since the end of the season, which seems right because by the end of the season, he looked to be in good shape. Like the very beginning of the season seemed bad and all those like pictures went viral of him. Um, but he lost like all that weight within the first couple of months because by January, he was like playing really, really well. So I don't think he's like that much skinnier than he was, you know, like in March. Yeah, I, I don't think it'll be all that drastic. And, and, you know, I think there was some concern that he had lost too much weight and would, you know, this could be a Kevin Love situation. But uh, I would imagine that a lot of that will probably be gained back uh, fairly quickly if that is the case. Uh, another interesting news, Ben Simmons, uh, apparently preparing to play at power forward for Philly, which he, you know, reading that sentence or hearing it sounds really strange, but at the end of the day, this isn't really all that different from how they've used him on and off these last couple of years. No, it, it sounds almost more like they're just trying to find a way to get Shake Milton in the starting lineup, um, you know, instead of Horford. Like, I, it's, I guess they still want to do the Horford as, as a backup thing, which I think kind of makes sense. Um, but... I don't know. It's just another one of those situations where, I mean, maybe this is just like the positions don't matter that much, 
but any any offensive possession that Ben Simmons is off ball is a negative possession. Like I feel like you're just starting like a half step behind because you have to just deal with the spacing issues. So I mean, if 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 Shake Milton's going to start and be mostly a spot up shooter, that's great. I, if he starts handling the ball too much, that's going to end up not being good. But who even knows how much time like those two are actually going to spend on the court together? Because I mean the the Sixers lineup combinations that they can pull out are just like any type of lineup that you want. Mm-hmm. They can put they can put Simmons at center. They could put him at small forward. They could do anything. And their bench still isn't really that good. So I think they'll just end up cycling whoever's hot like into right. these games. Whether it's Cork Maz or they have Glenn Robinson and Alec Burks now. Like they have that they have options. None of them are great. But if you kind of play like the hot hand, that I think that's <laughs> that'll have to work. Yeah, no, I think you put that perfectly. I, you know, you and I were going through and adjusting our projections today, and the Sixers are one of the teams that I hit, and I, I kind of thought the exact same thing. I was like, I, I shouldn't like this bench, but at the same time, like, all the, all the individual names, I'm like, eh, I kind of like that guy. I kind of like that guy. Like Alec Burks, I mean, he's never really been in a great winning situation, but he's a guy who, I mean, on the right night, can give you like 25, and. I think if you're the Sixers, who have had a terrible bench. Like their bench is in significantly better shape now than it was before they acquired a lot of those guys around the deadline. So even though they haven't had like a ton of time to acclimate Alec Burks and Glenn Robinson and you know even Mike Scott, who's who's playing time has kind of decreased this year, they have a lot of options in a vacuum. It might not love them, but like you said, these are all, all guys who, in some, in one way or another, maybe not on this team, but have all proven themselves in the NBA in some form or fashion. So, you know, if you have to throw Alec Burks out there for 20 minutes in a, in a playoff series, I, I don't really think that's the end of the world. I, I think there are worse and less dependable players who are going to be playing big minutes for, for teams that have title aspirations. Yeah. I didn't even mention Matisse Thibel, who I right. like have been forgetting about and cause his playing time slipped a little bit, but mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's the perfect kind of wild card guy that, you know, if another team's guard is just like getting hot, like if Kemba starts going off or if like, you know, uh, Kendrick Nunn starts, you know, on fire or something. You just try to throw Matisse on him to, you know, to uh, to try to lock him down or get in their head a little bit. So he's like, yeah. he's great. No, to have and I too. mean, if if Kendrick Nunn starts going off, it's like, what are you gonna do? <laughs> at that point? You, know, you might as well just pack it in, just take the L that night. Yeah. All right. Can we talk about why? Like, how did Matisse Thibel make it as far as he did in the draft? Is anything that he's done this year surprising? Like, is it hasn't he been pretty much exactly who everyone thought he would. He was billed as this incredible, incredible handsy on-ball defender. That's He's lived up to that reputation. The three-point shooting you know, was a little bit shaky or at least had some question marks at the college level. He's been fine in that respect. Basically just shoots from the corner, hits 35%. That's great for a rookie who's a, a defensive player first. He went 20th in this past draft. And I, again, I, I just don't understand. I mean, obviously a lot of the teams picking ahead of 20, you know, maybe you're looking for someone with a little more upside. You know, you think of like, a, you know, Goga Bataze went 18, Alexander Walker went 17, you know, guys who who are viewed as having more upside. I get that. But I mean, it's just based on his pedigree and and what he'd done at the college level, it, it just it seems like he should have been taken probably eight spots higher at least. And I think if you did a redraft, he maybe sneaks into the, the back end of the top 10. I mean, he's the he's the perfect guy to draft into a winning situation. Like he's not going to demand the ball. He's not going to do much on offense. He's he's a passable three point shooter, and he'll do a bunch of the 
you know, they're defending that the other guys on your team aren't going to want to do. It's not going to be like some weird locker room issue of like a guard coming in, right. thinking you can handle the ball and take shots, stuff like that. He's versatile enough. He's not going to take one specific person's playing time. Um, yeah, it's, it, it does seem really weird that he fell because uh, like I understand like you want guys who are more high volume three point shooters than him. But if you're if your starting point is like he's an average three point shooter. That's good, right? Like, if you know he right. could be one of the best wing defenders or guard defenders in the NBA, and his starting point on offense is like passable shooter, that seems like yeah. a, a risk worth taking before 20. Right. He was a 35.8% three point shooter in four years at Washington. And, and part of the issue was that it went, you know, he was a 40 plus percent shooter one year, then he was a 30% shooter as a senior. So he was very up and down, but he's almost putting up the exact same percentage in the NBA. And you could find plenty of examples of things not translating like that. But, you know, you look at that run of Thibel went 20, Brandon Clark went 21, Grant Williams went 22. All three of those guys, you know, big time contributors for good teams. And and again, you know, you're 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 looking for maybe those type of guys in the 20s. I get that. But, you know, it I, I don't know. I think Detroit probably wishes they had taken Thibel over Sekou Dumbuya, and I, I would bet that San Antonio wishes they had taken him over Luka Samanach, who played 12 minutes this past year for a team that was like dying for anyone to play capable minutes. I saw, I mean, I saw Luka play actually in person when I was in Texas in the G League. He looks like <laughs> he looks like he could be good. It's not, okay, I'm not, I'll default I'm not, to you on this. I, I retract not, my comment. I'm not blowing smoke right now. And Kelvin yeah. Johnson. Um, Samanach looks like he was like really athletic, actually. Yeah. Um, and and uh, Kelvin Johnson kind of reminds me of RJ Barrett. Not mm-hmm. sure if that's great or not, but all those guys seem like I can't they'll take be all right. That you say about Barrett? <laughs> no, the play style where it's like he's he's built, he drives a lane, he draw he draws contact. Like he's it's you know like a DeRo- like what DeRozan is has turned into, and like that's kind of that mold of like RJ Barrett, Kelvin Johnson, LeBron James. Yeah, no, totally. I, I get it. You know, Jordan one guy. Hill. To finish out this completely unnecessary discussion of the 2019 draft, I, you know, I, w- I was going through and doing projections for Orlando as well. Chuba Okiki, their their first round pick, who oh, tore his yeah. ACL during the NCAA tournament back in March. I haven't heard. I mean, he's not going to play from what I've heard, but I mean, his recovery is now going on. Trying to do the mental math, like it'll be it'll be almost like 18, 17 months by the time play resumes. I mean, I, I'm a little surprised that we haven't heard anything on that front. I mean. Obviously, he can take his time if he wants, but you know, in terms of the timeline, it, it wouldn't be crazy if he came back and played in this. Yeah, is he? Well, he's got to be like a. Is he like potentially a small ball like stretch five? Like, is he like? Yeah, I mean, kind of. I guess yeah, kind of a more of a true four, but could certainly play some five, definitely. Okay. Oh, I I was looking at the wrong block numbers. I was like, why is this dude averaging like? Three blocks per game. I was looking at his turnovers. Uh, okay, so I, I think he. It's, there might be a weird contract situation with him. Now that I look into this, I, I think he like he signed like a faux rookie deal basically, and was just like rehabbing with the Magic, and he he like might not even be under true contract yet. I don't. know. There's something weird there. Okay. If you want to look into it on your own time, you can. We will not. We will not dive into the details right now. Um, you wrote an article on the site. Uh, while I was away looking at some of the the opening lines for the first two days 
of the NBA restart. So I believe we have two games on Thursday the 30th. And then is it five games on Friday uh, the 30th? I know the I second day is definitely much I think larger. It's six. Six. Okay. So day one, you know, the, the big opener, Jazz Pelicans and then Clippers Lakers. That's going to be fantastic. And then, I mean, the nice thing about the NBA bringing only a select, like, I, I mean, over, over two thirds of the league is going to be there, to be fair. But there are very few bad games. You know, like we get right. magic sets on night two, which nobody's going to care about. But like, you're never going to have Clippers Hawks or, you know, Lakers. Hornets like those type of games are just gone and I, I think there is a case to be made this is totally apropos of nothing but uh, I, I know like the Pelicans have privately complained that like yeah we have an easy schedule uh, the rest of the way compared to the other 21 teams but our schedule was going to be easier than it is now because you know they were they were scheduled to play you know a lot of those bottom feeder teams and the NBA did what it could to replicate that schedule in Orlando but if you if you had like eight games remaining against those eight teams that are not there. Um, you know, like those are basically eight free wins. And like, yeah, maybe you make up for it by playing the Kings and the Spurs and the Suns and the Wizards. But those, those aren't nearly like as big a locks to win as they, they likely would have been had the season continued. No. And I mean, the Wizards should still be a, a lock as a win. Yeah, yeah um, there may be more right. locks. Than there been. Yeah, you're right. They were going to have a, a huge advantage. And now that's that's. That's less so, but they are they are favored against the Jazz uh, by two points, which at first I thought was surprising, and I started thinking about it a little bit. And you you know I I dug into the numbers a little bit about the Jazz without Bogdanovich, which those numbers look horrendous, by the way, like yeah. minus three and a half points per 100 possessions when he's not on the court. Um, and obviously the Pelicans have been trending up, you know, since Zion made his debut, they're plus four and a half points. So like, you know. I, I think it actually makes sense that they're favored here. Um, but I'm not sure like what people will I'm not sure what people will do here in terms of like which side will, will probably be bet on the most. Yeah, I mean, so you wrote a full article like, you know, really kind of diving into to each of these first uh, seven games or eight games over the first two days. It, nothing to me, you know, just at a glance really jumps out all that much. Um, right. You know, I, I think most of the lines are about what you'd expect. Uh, you, you have to take into account, you know, just the strangeness of this whole format and kind of the lack of of built in, you know, favoritism toward the home team, which no longer exists. But was there anything that that truly jumped out to you uh, from any of these games? Um, I think I, I mean, I, I, I guess two things that I'll, that I'll point out the sun. So the Suns are six and a half point favorites over the Wizards. And I think you can just honestly just hit the favorite like there's no reason the sun, this game should be within seven points right Suns wizards i agree I, I, although i just i feel like there have been so many examples of this like if you if you want to bet regular season games you're know, like we're you know we're always on like the DraftKings show making picks and and on Beeson and whatnot and like even when there's like the most obvious you know lakers hawks and it's like lakers minus nine and a half so i mean the, the, the number is the number for a reason and it's like those some of those teams that even though they're like massively overmatched like they always find a way to make it interesting like I don't know. I, I think Washington is going to be frisky enough and like it might not even be their own doing. It might just be teams not taking them seriously enough that like they'll, they're not going to lose by 25 plus every single game, even though when you line up the rosters and compare them, they probably should. Right. I I don't know. I just feel like I feel like this should be closer to like double digits. I, I, I understand like the, the reason to not want to do that. But I just yeah. I just feel like I, I could never bet the Wizards in this case. I just 
I just won't do it. Um, yeah, and I guess the, Suns might have, the Suns might have the five best players in the game. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think another one I thought was interesting was that the Mavericks are favored over the Rockets by a point and a half, and I was not expecting that. Mm. I would have expected the Rockets to be the favorite team. Um, but I mean, if you if you dig into the numbers a little bit, the Rock the Mavericks I think do have a better like point differential than the Rockets. Um, just like overall the season as a whole, the Mavericks are theoretically the better team. I think they have like um, the Mavericks. I think have the second or third. I, I don't know how to phrase this. Least wins, less wins than they're supposed to, based on point differential. Um, okay. But yeah, I mean it'll be interesting to see because you know when you when you take a lot of those numbers into account for like the Rockets, it's for their whole season. Right. But now their team is so different right. that how much can you really look into that? And the numbers with like Covington there suggest that the Rockets should be favored by like five, six, seven points. But um, if you if you look at the whole season numbers, it makes sense that the Mavericks are favored. But I'm not really sure what I would do there, you know, because yeah. they're it's a, it's a tough one. I think putting it close is correct. I think most people bet Houston. Right. I mean, I think that's the first impulse. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's maybe a case to be made that this line, you know, might might flip once we get confirmation that what Russell Westbrook is in the bubble. You know, he he had the positive test. You know, maybe there's maybe they are baking that in a little bit. Um, but I I think I would disagree with the notion that the obvious bet is the Rockets, just because I I think Dallas, you know, even though the Rockets have garnered this kind of like long term betting support when you start to look at non LA teams to go to the finals, it seems like people are really in on Dallas as you know, a team that, like you said, is is on paper worse than they should be. Yeah, you know, like they, I mean, they're 13 games over 500. They're a very good team, but um, I mean, you're saying like if they if they had won as many games as the numbers implied that they should, they would currently be tied with Denver for third in the Western Conference, and I think we'd view them quite a bit differently. So, you know, when you start to really dig into the numbers, and and obviously the people who set these lines do that, you know, I I wonder if. If you just throw the seeds out, you know, if you're when you're making these odds, I, I don't think you want to take the standings into account and you just say, you know, kind of blind resume this team or this team. I, I think Dallas stacks up pretty favorably uh, compared to a lot of those teams that are in that bunch. Denver, Utah, OKC, Houston, uh, kind of in the middle of the Western Conference. I agree. I mean, the, the Mavericks, their point differential, if you expand it to like a what you expect a team, how many games you expect a team to win in a normal 82 game season, they're about equal to a 55 win team, which is really surprising because their third best player is Tim Hardaway Jr. Right. And right. that's doesn't seem like it would add up. Um, and I think that the Rockets are uh, kind of, a, I want to say more well-rounded, but their starting five is like really good. Um, but I don't know. I it's, it's tough. I understand why this is close. Other than that, I felt like most of the odds um, made sense. Like, Kings are favored by three points over the Spurs. Milwaukee's five points over the Celtics. Portland's one and a half over the Grizzlies. Although I think you could actually bump. I, I feel like I could still take Portland there. And then um, Lakers one and a half over Clippers and Orlando five points over over Brooklyn. Yeah, the longer term odds, like I said, are virtually unchanged. Not a whole lot to report there. Um, we'll we'll keep tabs on those, you know, kind of day by day. But I don't think we'll get a lot of movement on that until games actually start. The last thing I wanted to hit uh, before we head out of here, yeah, I mentioned that you and I went through and, and kind of swept our projections today. 
I just wanted to ask of the teams that you went through, were there any that you really struggled with? You know, any any depth charts or rosters that you you know you forgot a certain guy was there or had trouble deciding, you know, where do you think we should kind of project these minutes to be allocated? Um, for me, I mean, it was it was the really good and the really bad teams, I think, are where I struggled most when you're when you're starting to project out for those eight games. You know, how many is Giannis going to play? How many is Kawhi going to play? How many is LeBron going to play? And then on the other side, how many does DeMar DeRozan play? You know, if the Suns go 0-3 in their first three, is that the last we see of Devin Booker? Who plays any minutes for the Wizards? You know, I think that was a team that, that you actually took. Yeah, the Wizards one was kind of tough because it was like, well, you know, how many minutes does Garrison Matthews play? Yeah. You so know, like you how much more did I like, give? You have to turn off like parental controls just to access that page. <laughs> yeah, that was that was rough. Um, and yeah, it's like is, <laughs> I mean, is Admiral Schofield even going to play? Like this is the time, right? Like shouldn't Admiral Schofield be playing? Schofield be playing like thirty minutes? Like uh, so it's, it's hard to know. He like, weight, so he's ready. He's <laughs> that's good. That was, I, other than that, I mean, Toronto was kind of interesting because they were down so many guys throughout the year, and this is like. They're, I think, completely healthy now, um, and this is one of the first times all year they've been completely healthy. So it's kind of like interesting. I was trying to figure out like how many minutes is Gasol actually going to play. Norman Powell was playing like 30, 35 minutes at some point. OG Ananobi was up a ton of minutes. Is Ronda Hellas Jefferson just out of the rotation? Rotation now. What is Terrence Davis's spot in the rotation look like now? Who is he was playing great? So like. That was another team, which that's on the other end of the spectrum. Like you mentioned, they're really good teams that now it's not clear exactly what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, the, the really good teams, I think, are, are the most difficult because I think the Bucks are the one that I struggled with most. I mean, again, I'm, not to harp too much on other podcasts, but I was I was listening to a non-Rotowire NBA podcast. I betrayed us um, earlier today. And I, one of the points made, I, I think it was Eric Kareen was on on the Low podcast. And they mentioned the, and this feels like five years ago now, but the reluctance of Mike Budenholzer to play Giannis like big, big minutes, even in the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, he was still really careful about deploying him over like 35, 37 minutes when we've routinely seen guys like Cardin, LeBron, play like 45 47 minutes in these type of series and you know i think one of the big questions and this is more looking ahead to later in the playoffs as opposed to this eight game uh you know resumption but will they you know will the bucks specifically be more willing to put put Giannis up to 39 minutes in like round two you know obviously you're not going to play him more than you have to but I, I, you know, they, they were able to get all the way to a 2-0 lead in the Eastern Conference Finals last year while withholding his minutes. And obviously they've taken that to an even larger level uh, in the regular season, you know, restricting him and Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe. Like all those guys have, are, were playing, you know, minuscule minutes compared to other superstars. Plus now you have this long break to to kind of recharge. Do we do you think the Bucks will be more willing to roll Giannis out there for 40 plus minutes and just ensure that? If they have a 15-point lead, they're not going to blow it or ensure that it never gets to the point where they're down 15 and, and the game's over. I hope so. I mean, if it's an issue of cardio, you would think they should just have him focus like purely on cardio until the moment that the, you know, until the second round of the playoffs hits, right? Just have him do as much work in like the pool and on exercise bikes as possible because they're not even going to, they don't even really need him to play for 
the eight-game regular season. So No, not at all. You would think that it would make sense to try to get his cardio as high as it's ever been so that he can, when the time comes, he can play 40 or 45 minutes because, I mean, it's it's tiring to watch him play. Like, he's, yeah. he's all over the place. So you can understand why they want to reduce him to, like, you know, cap him at, like, 35 minutes even in a postseason game like that because, you know, the more that you exert yourself in that period of time, injury risk goes up, stuff like that. But if it's to try to win a title, I mean, at some point, you just got to take the risk. Yeah, I mean, I've always been of the position that there's not a huge difference between 39 minutes and 43 minutes. You know, like, I, I guess to me, that just seems like you're you're really splitting hairs. But I think with Giannis specifically, like you said, he's when he's on the court, whether it's two minutes into the first quarter or two minutes left in the fourth quarter, he's going balls to the wall, like as hard as he possibly can at all times. So like with him, I don't think it's necessarily like, oh, we don't want to we don't want to wear him out. It's like if we throw him in for these extra two minutes here, there's a chance he might get hurt because he's going to go flying into the stands trying to chase a loose ball. Yeah. And yeah, you don't, you don't want to try to like have him pull back from that necessarily. I mean, you'd like to, but then he's going to say, what's the point of me being on the court? Like, can't you just get like, can't you just get like Pat Congleton in here to like try really hard? And it's the same as me not trying. So, you know, It's a yeah. thin line to walk, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I just hope, you know, that Bud is 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 a little more willing to extend him uh, in, the, in these playoffs than he was last year. I mean, I think they learned the lesson the hard way, and especially seeing how that finals played out. And, you know, nothing's a guarantee. Who knows how, how things are different if it's the Bucks instead of Toronto. But, I mean, I think that turned into a much more winnable finals based on the injuries on the ah. Golden State side. Um, so I, I think, you know, as you and I were, were watching a lot of those games in, in and around Wisconsin, that, that kind of became uh, salt in the wound in a lot of ways was, you know, losing four in a row to Toronto is one thing, but then to, to see Toronto catch some of the breaks in terms of injuries that they did and, and kind of, kind of walk to that title, um, not to take anything away from Toronto, because you know, I think a lot of other teams would have done it that way. But, uh, I think, I think that kind of made it, you know, extra bittersweet for, for Milwaukee fans. I agree. All right, man. Anything else? I have nothing else. Well, I guess how was your how was your trip in general? Well, uh, like like I told you before we got started, I'm battling through um, a pretty severe canker sore on my tonsil. I initially thought I'd maybe gotten sunburned on, in my throat. That was the initial <laughs> diagnosis by me. Um, turns out that was not the case, but um, it was it was a lot of fun. Other than the canker sore that developed kind of midway through. Uh, and kind of limited me, but I was able to play through it. We we went out to Southeast Utah, so basically in and around the city of Moab, if any listeners happen to have ever been there, uh, which is home to both Canyonlands and Arches National Parks, as well as a state park and just some other like really cool areas that somehow were not state parks. Like one of the things we kept saying is like we're we're just driving through these areas that are like mesmerizing scenery, you know, all all kind of Grand Canyon looking type of stuff. And, you know, none of it's protected land. There's just like houses here and there. There's like people that have like trailer parks just set up like any like anywhere that we drove over the course of the week would have been by far the coolest place in Wisconsin. And they weren't even <laughs> like they weren't even like protected land out there. It was it was crazy. I guess crazy. I haven't I haven't been like to that. I've only been to California and mm-hmm. uh, Nevada out west. So I'd like okay. to I'd like to get like more northwest. I well. assume you're talking Vegas, Nevada. I am talking Vegas. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, 
it's not similar to Vegas, but in ter- if you get outside of Vegas, like last year, um, I went hiking before the the Roto Vegas trip, and the the terrain out there is pretty similar to what we saw in Utah. Not not a lot of green. You know, the Colorado River is basically the only water source. So if you get if you get more than like a thousand feet away from that, you, it's just essentially rock and desert everywhere. Um, but it was it was really fun overall, and anybody looking to take a trip out west would would very highly recommend. I can't wait to play in the NBA. I can't wait to play in the NBA. I'm waiting for the draft, working hard to improve my craft from New Orleans. Tennessee, I'm the best at shooting the three. Take you off the dribble, go past my man. I'm in the lane, now watch me slam. I can't wait to play in the NBA. I can't wait to play. Just as a kid watching TV, already knew where I wanted to be. Started out as just a dream, but my family believed in me. I played for Vandy, the USA, and now I'm headed to the NBA. I can't wait to play in the NBA. I Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.